Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each month will consist of two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. Hi, welcome back to the Let's Get to Work podcast. This is Brooke, your committee chair, and I'm here with Lori Sharp. And I would like you to go ahead and start, Lori, by introducing what your current job description is. Thank you so much for joining us. So currently, I am a certified work incentive practitioner, and I work with people who are disabled who are looking for work or returning to work. And I work as part of an employment network. And I just finished my second master's as a vision rehabilitation teacher in December. My first master's is in social work. Great. Yes. A uh, social worker, fellow social worker. Um, And I have had the privilege of having my paths crossed with Lori. I've seen her in action um, when she did a panel for us with the employment committee. Um, so Lori, why don't you, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about how the concept of employment was introduced to you as a visually impaired person in your younger years. Well, I remember attending programs for, uh, youth who are blind and visually impaired as a young adult. Um, I, at one of the programs, they gave us like jobs to do. And one of them, I I was placed in a preschool program with blind and multiply disabled children. And um, then they switched me to one other classroom one day because they were short on staff and some eight-year-old kid bit me. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. Um And I always thought I didn't want to work with people who are blind or visually impaired. I felt like that would be kind of pigeonholing myself into, um, you know, like not getting out of my comfort zone, stuff like that. So I tried to stay away from the blindness field. And I did that for basically 20, almost 20 years. Um, But, you know, as a blind child, I was always looking into like the human services, social work type of field. And um, then in my advocacy work is where I came across uh, benefits practitioner work. So that expanded my knowledge base and my horizons in that area. And in 2012, I became a certified benefits practitioner, which allowed me then to work with both my clients and my day job as a social worker, as well as my volunteer work through the American Council of the Blind to help people on issues related to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things like that. Thank you for sharing that. So it sounds like you've had quite a hybrid of experiences, both within the realm of blindness and outside of that realm. What has been your, when you decided to kind of ease into the field of that's more specific to people returning to work or finding work within the disability community. What was that transition like for you and how did you manage the 
the fear of pigeonholing yourself, so to speak? Well, um, I moved from New York to Virginia, so I had given up full-time employment, which was really, really hard because I think even when I was working full-time, my head was always kind of spinning with things that needed to be done the next day or thinking about people's situations. So I went from a full-time job to part-time work and full-time school, and that was a big change for myself. Um I think, you know, going back and and doing the uh, benefits work, I always disclose to my clients that I myself am disabled. I think that's important for them to know. The work that I do is all remote. So the hardest part there is the employment network that I uh, work for has a double authentication uh, process for their website. And um, even that they receive federal funding, it doesn't work very well with JAWS. So I have to write my notes and have somebody else put them in um, because basically it's easier to do it that way than have a fight with JAWS and all of that luxurious stuff that we, we get to deal with. So that's the way I kind of resolve that issue. So it is difficult in the sense that there's a level of accessibility that I don't have, you know, to the computer system. But I've, you know, that's the workaround that I have chosen. With my clients, I think sometimes disclosing right now, I'm not working with anybody who's blind. But prior to leaving New York State, I did do benefits work and all of my clients through that were through the Commission for the Blind. So I got to work very closely with people who were blind and help them figure out different aspects of their job, the different work incentives and how it would help them the best. And that's kind of also what sparked my interest in uh, vision rehabilitation teaching is that very often I would see people not have skills in a certain area or you know, ask me questions. And I'm like, oh, like I'm a benefits counselor. I'm not, you know, qualified to answer this. I can answer it as a blind person, but maybe it's not the best to meet their needs. And I would tell them, you know, maybe you should seek the services of a rehabilitation teacher, um, you know, because I think it's important to, to understand what your limitations are, you know, but it it really pushed me to think about other full-time work um, that I could possibly do. So Lori, you have now, it sounds like with all of that experience now, then you decided to get a master's in, um, in a specifically blindness related field, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what informed your decision to go from, how did you make that decision to go from specifically initially not really a disability related field to a disability related field and then to more of a blindness specific field? Well, I really felt that I could assist people who are blind in both their adjustment process when they experience vision loss later in life, um, you know, because of being able to kind of relate to the day-to-day experience as a person who is blind, but I felt I 
really also needed the academic knowledge to understand different aspects of blindness and visual impairment. I myself am totally blind from retinopathy or prematurity. And while I've always had an understanding of what low vision is like and what the adjustment to blindness process may be like for someone and different struggles that they encounter, I felt it was important to have the additional experience academically to understand those areas more in depth. That makes a lot of sense. So you, and I think I appreciate that you didn't just allow your own personal experience to be the be all end all of your knowledge. You also took that to the level of education. So it's funny because I had to take Braille as one of my classes and my sighted classmates were like, oh, you're so lucky, you know it already. I'm like, yeah, but I know the old code. (laughs) So (laughs) I can read it, but writing it is a little more challenging. It's a so, whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 I got through the class and I, I did get an A in it, but I got an A in a lot of other things. <laughs> so, right. Just because right. you know a code doesn't mean you can teach it also. Mm-hmm. So walk me through a day in the life of your current remote job that you do. And I know you mentioned you currently don't have very many blind people or any blind people on your caseload. So tell me some of the stuff that you do on a daily basis. Sure. So basically what happens is we receive referrals uh, from the American Dream Employment Network and the clients um, come from them as potential clients. I do a more in-depth screening um, to kind of find out, okay, is this person currently working? And they got a letter from Social Security that says, oh, my benefits are going to stop and that's why they're looking for services or are they really looking for work? Or are they thinking they want to go back to work for a few months because they have a couple of bills to pay? So, you know, I kind of have to assess where are they? What are they looking for? Um, You know, is their housing stable? If it's not, you know, what are some options in those areas that we could look at, um, you know, to get them onto if it's a disability where there's maybe a supportive housing list, you know, doing a, a very thorough assessment of their work history? Do they have a resume? Do they know how to go to websites and search for jobs? Um, You know, sometimes we get clients who don't even have email, which is a real challenge. But, you know, there are ways to work around things. Um, And, uh, you know, basically at that point, we then enter into a... um, plan for employment, similar to what you would do with the vocational rehabilitation system. And once somebody starts working, they are required to, in addition to reporting to Social Security, report their wages to us as an employment network so that we can track uh, the wages, because that's how we get paid through Social Security. We don't, you know, it's it's not um, services that are, are that the client pays for. Um, And most of the people that we work with, well, I shouldn't say that because we do have somebody that drives, like he started out out driving a, some type of vehicle, I forget what now, and, you know, then found a a higher paying job driving a different type of vehicle. So I was going to say most of the people that we have, um, you know, have like service jobs and, and things like that, but not all of them. And, but, 
we don't have the ability to cover things like schooling and things like that. So we will refer people over to um, continue, continuing education or, or their vocational rehabilitation system. But the nice thing about being part of an employment network is depending on what type of benefits somebody has, we can follow them for three to five years post-employment. So as long as they continue to be employed, we can continue to work with them. So it is nice because uh, right now I'm working with somebody who has a JD and is working full-time as a law clerk, uh, a paralegal. That's the word I want. I'm sorry. And um, making over $60,000, close to $70,000 a year. and with a Juris Doctorate, she could be doing a lot more work-wise, but she feels that based on her disability right now, that's what she's comfortable with. And she hasn't worked in 10 years prior. So this is a big step for her. And, um, you know, she's almost a year into her employment. And now she's starting to think about using her actual lawyer skills as opposed to her paralegal area of things. Um, so it is very, very nice to help people take those additional steps that they need to work through their employment process and help them to take a step up to the next level. Well, that at the risk of sounding condescending as a social worker, I know this, this phrase can be condescending, but that does sound like it could be pretty rewarding to see <laughs> to see people move through those processes. It really is. Um, you know, this, this young lady, when she contacted me, was living in a basement apartment and previous to contacting us, had been homeless for several years. So it's, it's been a long journey for her, but well-deserved. And I don't know that she would have gotten the same level of support from a VR system, um, you know, and she had the skills to do the work, but she needed somebody there to, to hold her hand and kind of walk the journey with her. So it sounds to me like you have some variety of clientele and some clients need different services than others. And a big part of your job is triage. Uh, what is the cha most challenging part of the assessment and triage process? I think the most challenging part for me in the beginning was I kind of thought like everybody wouldn't, con nobody would contact us if they really didn't want to work. And I've kind of learned that, like I said before, you know, some people think they can get a job just because they have a big bill to pay. And that's not the way it is. And it's okay to tell people, no, I don't, I, I don't think we can work together. And that is the nice flexibility of working with an employment network that you can, you know, say, you know, maybe you would work better with somebody else. Um, you know, I'm, I don't have the ability to sit here and, and basically help people look for jobs if they're not really willing to do the work. Um, you know, but I, I like that I am able to see the progressive people. And I don't see it as my progress. I see it as their progress, making the big decisions and taking the big steps that they need to take 
And I'm just a piece of that, helping them move along the game of life, so to speak. Right. And I think you've brought up a good point that I'd like to touch on, which is that you can't give people the will to work or the motivation to do certain things. How have you found people have, what has helped people navigate either discouragement or fear of stigma in finding jobs or keeping jobs? You know, I think sometimes that's the hardest thing is um, the individual I was speaking about before, she in her year wound up having two different supervisors because of a the company she was working for was bought out by another company literally like a month into her working. And she did not disclose her disability to the first employer. Wanted nothing to do with that. We had a whole conversation about legal protections versus not disclosing, um, you know, those types of things. And when she started with the second employer, she was so excited to tell me that she disclosed her disability and she wanted to work a longer day and give herself like a two hour gap for lunch so that she could decompress during that time and then go back to work. Um, and I thought that was such a huge step. And it was a decision that she came to all by herself. She never told me she was going to approach it with them. But when she, you could just hear the glow in her voice, she was so excited that, you know, she was able to take that step. And I think, you know, the hardest part is convincing somebody that if, you're willing to work hard at what you're doing and put everything in. Usually employers will work back with you. And I think so many people have such a fear of not succeeding that it can hold them back. And it's so important for people to have tools in their toolbox and practice phrases that they can say to help them feel successful and help them in in communicating with their employer about what their needs are. I often say that sometimes as a person who's blind, I may miss something and not know what's going on because I don't see it. So if I'm missing it, without some sort of feedback, I may be totally lost in a situation, but it's important to really come forward and find out from your employer, like, okay, how many calls do you need me to answer? And be honest and say, you know what? I think after taking 20 minutes of calls, I, I will need to take a break is as a reasonable accommodation are you okay with that and they might say well what about 25 minutes and then you can have a five minute break so it's it's not always about what you want as a client it's it's also about negotiating with your employer and i think sometimes people think that what they want is what they should get and that's not always the case and i think it's important to have those discussions 
with clients and kind of feel them out and set that's probably not the best word to use but uh you know get a sense of where they are in their thinking process and help them to take some of those negative thoughts and put a positive spin on them that sounds like great strategies to help people recognize that a lot of the stigmas they're facing are internal not that they don't exist, but that maybe there's ways to change our relationships to them yeah. so that they don't keep us so, so stuck. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I also um, think that sometimes people need education as to the systems that they have to work with, and whether that be a transportation system or, you know, a, a healthcare system, if they need to be have treatments or something like that? What can they do to get treatments at a different time of day or something like that? Um, you know, can they go in late one day a week? You know, there's, there's right. all different ways, but you have to kind of help them think through those things. And be creative and flexible. Yes. Yeah. 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 What is, um, what is one thing you learned between now and when you started even thinking about employment when you were a young adult? What's one thing that you've learned that if you could, you would tell that young adult version of yourself? Oh, to be organized. And <laughs> I think organization is so important. Um, I'm not organized at home. I've always been very organized at work. And now that I work at home, you know, I've changed, I do certain things in certain ways. It's funny because I can. <laughs> the social worker in me, my mother was the same way. So, um, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. But I think, and I remember as a child, my vision teacher, you know, okay, these, go these are going back to the computer disc days. This disc is for this class. And I remember thinking like, yeah, just stick a disc in and you put your notes on it. And what you get is what you get. No, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work like that. You really do need to be organized. And Having worked with young adults who are blind or visually impaired over the years, um, often I think there's that is an area that people struggle in. Um, and now with technology, I just think there's so many things out there that can help us, whether it be Braille output. As, as a Braille user, I love Braille, but that's not for everybody. Um, you know, so there's also speech options and all that stuff, getting creative in those areas. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that's especially important for people with disabilities that we have to have our own internal world organized to get ready to face whatever external situations we might have. The, the other thing, I, I've never struggled with time management. I, I come from the belief of if you're late, I mean, if you're early, you're, you're late. You know, um, I I love being places extra extra early, um, and I think sometimes people tend to forget about those things. Right. Yeah. Well, there's so many more questions I could ask you, and I think we could go. There's a lot of things we could dig into. I you know I didn't get a chance to ask too much about your remote, your change to remote learning. Although I really do appreciate that you shared that. There have been some accessibility challenges. I think there's sometimes a misconception that if you work in the accessibility or in the disabled disability field, you won't encounter accessibility challenges. Uh, and I, 
I appreciate the fact that you shared that that isn't true. <laughs> oh, no, that's definitely not true. And, and uh, actually, my second semester, we went in my uh, vision rehabilitation degree, we went totally remote because of COVID. So that was a big change. It was a big change for the professors and all the students. And some of it went really smoothly. Other things didn't go as smoothly. I think what was the hardest for me as a student is different professors were using different platforms. So some of my classes were using Blackboard and other classes were using Google Classroom. So, um, you know, it definitely was was challenging. And I do think that in the assistive technology area of things, I am very, very stupid when it comes to technology. I just, I get overwhelmed by it. The computer knows much more than I do. And I get flustered easily. And I said, you know what? I am going to pay. I didn't have sponsorship from VR. So out of my own pocket, I paid for some training courses or classes, I should say, with Mystic Access. And I met with them a couple of times and they reduced my stress level 100%. And while there were things that I did not learn with them, I did feel comfortable enough to, you know, dabble around and that type of thing on my own. And um, you know, sometimes we have to do those things as people who are blind is, is go over and beyond and sit down and figure things out outside of work hours. Absolutely. It does require us to be flexible and, and creative and sometimes put an extra effort on the front end just to get ourselves in a better spot later. We have a, a lot of our committee members are listening in. If anyone has a quick question for Lori, that's four minutes or less, feel free to unmute and share. Peter, um, and I have a, a, a question having to do with, um, you obviously work with people from all different kinds of backgrounds, people with and without disabilities, um, you know, in a variety of different career fields and so on and so forth. What is what is the main piece of advice you you might give to people um, either with or without disabilities in in this in this current employment world? How is it different from you know a bit uh, pre-COVID, if, if if at all? Um, I think as somebody who has interviewed both in person and also interviewed for jobs remotely because of COVID. I would say if you're not familiar with using a platform, make sure you use the plat, like, you know, play around with the platform that you might be using. The other thing is, is remote interviews can be a little difficult. Um, have somebody help you figure out what does your background look like behind you? you want your camera on because you want them to be able to see you. You want to be presentable um, and, you know, not laying in bed. I was literally on something professional with a lawyer actually working on a legal case. And one of the lawyers said, oh, I'm laying in bed with my dog. And I'm thinking, ouch, <laughs> I hope your employer doesn't know this. 
<laughs> so I would say just, you know, really be cognizant of where you are, what's around you. And, you know, it, it can be a little intimidating because I don't think you'd get the formalities of, you know, you can't talk about the weather or the drive-in because nobody drove in. <laughs> so, well, thank you know. you. Lori, that's great advice. I think being able to apply that and be sensitive to the changes in the remote climate is really important and presentability and all those factors that need to be considered. So we appreciate you sharing that and your personal experiences. And thank you again for being a guest on our podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.